Well, greetings in the Master's name this evening. Thank you, Brother Sam, for giving us a picture of what it means to be a brotherhood and to follow Christ. He gave us the opposite picture of what God has laid on my heart tonight. The title of the message is the harshest words ever spoken by the master. For text, let's turn to Matthew 23. And I understand that this passage could be Jesus' words to me. And I understand that Jesus, the only people Jesus ever condemned were those that acted like they were righteous and were not. I can just say I bring this message in fear and trembling. It's not an easy message for me to preach because I find myself in this message this evening. But let's start in Matthew 23, verse 37. I want you to understand that everything Jesus did, every word he said, was done because he loved you and I. He loved people. He did everything he did out of love. What a challenge for us that every word, everything, every action is motivated by love. And as we look at this passage, this text tonight, he said some really, really harsh words. He says some harsh words. But remember, they were spoken because he loved people so much. <clears throat> I want to read verse 37 here. I want you to understand, see Jesus' love here. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often... Would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. Can't you just hear Jesus' love for people in that verse? Love even for the people of this city which he killed his prophets and stoned his servants. That's love. So as we read and study this chapter, it's full of the harshest words he ever spoke that we know, that we have recorded. We have to understand they're coming from a heart that is willing to give his own lifeblood for the very people he's condemning. Jesus is speaking out of love. And we as his servants must do everything we do out of a heart of love also. Just like he did if we're going to be his true followers. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if ye have love one for another. All right, let's go back to the first beginning of the chapter, chapter uh, beginning of verse uh, chapter 23 here. And who would Jesus, we look at this chapter, think about who would Jesus be addressing today in this chapter? It would be easy to say he was talking to just religious leaders, to just the scribes and Pharisees of that day. He does address them directly. And that is why I said to bring this message in fear and trembling, because I realize that as an ordained leader, 
We as leaders do carry some of the same responsibility that the scribes and Pharisees carried in that day. We are responsible to lead out spiritually and to, to direct the church spiritually. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were supposed to do. But I'm confident that this chapter applies to more than just leadership. It applies to everyone that confesses to be a follower of Jesus. And I'll tell you why. People around us are looking to us for answers spiritually. Especially conservative Mennonites. We look different. You look different from the world around you. People see you as a very religious person. Someone who knows how to serve God. It affects the way you dress, the way you act, hopefully. (laughs) Someone who understands God's word, just like the scribes and Pharisees were supposed to. So I believe that Jesus' words here are applicable to each of us, no matter what our position or responsibility is. I don't want to read... I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read a couple verses at a time and look at those as we go. So I want to read verses 1 to 3 here. Verse 1, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Wow. Wow. Would Jesus say that about us? The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In a sense, you and I sit in Moses' seat. Our lives are setting the standard of holiness to the world around us. We are the living Ten Commandments to the people that see our lives. And we are the law of God to those who do not know the word. You are the deliverer of God's truth to the people you rub shoulders with every day. Just like Moses delivered God's truth to the people of Israel, you deliver truth to people. So in a sense, each of us sits in Moses' seat, just as the scribes and Pharisees did here. That's kind of heavy when you think about it. You know, we want to think of Moses as someone, he wrote a good portion of scripture. But in reality, he was simply a servant of God who walked with God and then shared what he learned from God with people. And thus he led them. Does that not describe us? Each of you. Verse 3 there, Jesus said, do what they say, but not what they do. Is that what Jesus would tell people about you and I? Do our actions line up with what we say and portray? Or are we hypocrites? The scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites, and the next several verses will tell us why. The basis of this message and the basis of this chapter, the the thing that brought the most... The harshest words out of Jesus was hypocrisy. Verses 4 to 7. I'm going to read those now. 
For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. So in verse 4 there, he talks about binding heavy burdens. Now, we could delve into church matters, but since I'm not speaking to ministry here this evening, just ministry, I'm going to leave that one alone. I want to make this a little more practical for us. Parents, do we require things of our children that we would not do ourselves? or that we would not be willing to do in their situation. Children see and resent hypocrisy, probably see hypocrisy in us quicker than anybody. They know us better. They know who we are. They see right through their parents. Children don't appreciate hypocrisy. And if we want our children to to follow the path that we are leading, them to hypocrisy cannot be in our lives to get a little bit more specific do we preach at our children about not texting while driving or about speeding and then text our friends that we're going to be late when we're in a rush to get to the, to the babysitters there's things that we actually do and don't think about it and believe me, I'm preaching to myself. As I studied this, I felt pretty <laughs> convicted. Requiring tough things is a, is a, of, of our children is a parent's responsibility. Teaching them the value of hard work, discipline, and sacrifice of self are vital if they're going to grow up to be useful in God's kingdom. But do we parent so that others think well of our family Or do we live and train our children the way we do to prepare them for a life of service to God? There's two different reasons for the way we parent. What's our heart motive? What would Jesus say when he looks in my life and says, Dave, why are you reacting that way? Why are you parenting the way you are? That's a challenge to me. Am I laying down burdens on someone else that I wouldn't carry myself? Employers. Crew leaders, those in authority, whoever you are, do you ask things of those under you that you would not be willing to do yourself? Or maybe for those of us that carry a lunchbox, maybe do we ask co-workers to do something we know is against company policy or against the law? that we would not want to be get caught doing ourselves. It seems to me that when we're shrugging those things off on others that we don't want to do, how do the people around us view that? Is that not a bit hypocritical? When people observe our lives, do they see hypocrisy? Remember, we set the standard for holiness to the world around us. How are we doing? Verse 5 sums up this section. 
It says, but all their works they do to be seen of men. What is the driving factor in my life or yours? Is it love of self or is it love for God that controls us? And as we go on, we'll see more of that. The last part of verse 5 mentions the phylacteries and the enlarged borders of their garments. And those are big words, and some people don't know what they are. It was fairly simple. Jesus talked about, or God talked, told them in the Old Testament to bind them about thy neck, uh, wear, wear the laws of bracelet on your hand. And so in trying to obey that, they got really... Um, the scribes and Pharisees got very practical with it. And they would make these leather pouches that would hang around their heads and on their foreheads, and some of them had them on their hands or on their wrists. There were a, little, a leather pouch with a tiny scroll with the law, with some of the law written on it. And so to look more religious, they'd make them bigger. And that was supposed to make them more religious. And Jesus just like, you know, that really wasn't what the law was even pointing to. It was teaching them to... To think on the law all the time. But it wasn't necessarily wrong for them to wear these phylacteries. Specifically, the ribbon of blue, the border around their garment, God had commanded that. He commanded it so that they would look different than the people around them. So they'd be set apart. Was that wrong? No, it was not wrong. It was a commandment of God that they were trying to observe. But they were doing it. They made them bigger so that they would look more holy. None of those things that Jesus mentioned were wrong. The border or the phylacteries, they were not wrong in them, of themselves. It was the attitude and purpose behind them that was wrong. They were doing these things to be seen of men, and it lit Jesus up. They did not do them to honor God, they did them to honor themselves. Now, does that sound like us today? Surely not. Actually, the Pharisees had a lot of in common with us today. They struggled with some of the very same things we do. And as you hear Jesus' condemnation of them, remember, they were men just like us. They were men that really, some of them really, really wanted to serve God. According to one Bible scholar, the Talmud describes seven different types of Pharisees. Six of the seven are bad. The first one, number one, was the shoulder Pharisee. He would wear all his good deeds and righteousness on his shoulder for everyone to see. He told people all about all the good things he did. We can remember where Jesus talked about him blowing a trumpet when they gave alms. That was a shoulder Pharisee. He was making sure everybody knew. He was doing good deeds. Second one was the wait a little Pharisee who always intended to do good deeds but could always find a reason to wait a little. He, he just, he never actually did the good deeds that he should have been doing for God. Number three was the bruised and bleeding Pharisee who acted so holy that he would turn his head away from any woman seen in public and was therefore constantly bumping into things tripping and thus injuring himself. Number four was the humpback Pharisee. He was so humble that he walked bent over and barely lifting his feet so everyone could see just how humble he was. 
And number five was the always counting Pharisee who was always counting up his good deeds and believed that he put God in debt to him for all the good he had done. And I, my mind went to the, the, uh, the Pharisee and the publican and the prayers that they prayed. I think that was sort of an always counting Pharisee. Number six was the fearful Pharisee who did good just because he was terrified that God might judge him if he didn't. And number seven was the God-fearing Pharisee, which I believe most of you here, probably, hopefully all of you, all of us here, fit this description. But the God-fearing Pharisee who really loved God and did good deeds to please the God he loved, not out of fear, not out of pride, not out of a host of other reasons, but out of a love for God. There were those. So maybe as I read that list, you thought of someone other than yourself as I read over those things. But really ask yourself, do I fit into any of those categories other than the last one, other than number seven, the God-fearing Pharisee? Maybe you can think of a time in your life when you did fit that and praise God that's not you anymore. We've all been hypocrites at some point in our lives. Do we care more about what, God, what man thinks of us than what God thinks? Let's skip a couple verses. Let's look at, jump down to verses 11 and 12. And this, I want to skip these because they were different things that, that um, Jesus said, don't be called rabbi, don't be called master. But it's clear in Scripture that he wasn't actually giving the command not to be called that. He was saying, don't love to be called that. I hope that's not an issue with any of us. You love to be called something, some um, name that lifts you up. But let's look, at, let's look at verses 11 and 12. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Have you ever heard the term the upside-down kingdom? The kingdom of God quite often works exactly opposite the nature of man. Completely different than the natural mind wants to think. To be great, we must be a servant. He even says in one place, a little child shall lead them. And in another place... Bible says we, be, we must become as a little child to enter his kingdom. That's not quite the exact words. But we must become as a child if we want to enter God's kingdom. That doesn't give you a picture of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. Now, children can get fairly self-centered. I understand that. But they're quick to forgive. They're quick to enjoy others and look out for others. So Jesus lays out God's design for his kingdom. True greatness only comes to the humble. But then he really lays it on the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Verse 13, and this is the beginning of the woes. It's eight woes 
that he gives to the, to the Pharisees. He says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, woe unto you, hypocrites. Eight times in the next 16 verses. He is saying, Grief and sorrow unto you. Does that sound like Jesus? It's actually some, I've heard some people say this is more than, it meant more than what we can really describe it. Woe just doesn't really carry the weight the way Jesus would have said it. But grief and sorrow, where do we get grief and sorrow? It's when somebody dies or bad things happen to us. And Jesus is saying, grief and sorrow to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now let's figure out why he said that. Verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. They were stumbling blocks to true believers, to true seekers. They put so many rules and laws and regulations and made it so hard to really come to God with an honest heart that people turned away. That wasn't what Jesus' kingdom is all about. Verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. They use their religion to extort money from the poor and the widows, even to the point of taking their homes. It's hard to understand. Of course, we didn't, don't live... In that culture, we don't understand what was happening here. But evidently, they were pretty ruthless. Then they turned right around and used long, elaborate prayers to make themselves look good. What a contrast to Jesus' humble leadership. What he really wanted his followers to do. Verse 15 Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye can pass land, sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Ouch. They spent countless hours and money trying to win converts, only to turn them further from the truth in the end. And history has it that the, the Jews actually had a, like, after Jesus came, they actually did a lot of proselyting, and there would, they won a lot of converts to Judaism during the next short period of time. So this must have been a time where, in, in their history, where they were actually doing a lot of evangelism, trying to get proselytes. And Jesus is, is saying about that. Here you bring these people in, but you turn them away from a true heart for God. Verses 16 to 22. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind. For whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind. For whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. 
And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Now this passage is a little bit difficult for us to understand because we're not supposed to swear. But what they had done was built a, a set of rules of what you could say and not say and how if you said if you swore by this, you didn't have to uphold your, your oath. But if you swore by this, you did. And if somebody didn't know their rules and regulations all, they would take them at their word and then because their law said they didn't have to uphold their oath, and they didn't have to uphold it. And Jesus said, no, that's wrong. Don't find ways to be dishonest. When we say yes, we say yes. And it means what we say. Verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. They were tithing even the leaves of the herbs in their garden, but were ignoring the heart of God in judgment, mercy, and faith. And note, he says the tithing is a good thing, but the heart of God, as portrayed in the law, was much more important. He said these are good things. You shouldn't have left that undone. The tithing is good, but the heart of God is so much more important. Verse 24 Ye blind guides, which strain in a gnat and swallow a camel. <laughs> Gives us a funny picture there. But they would actually strain the really, really uh, committed Pharisees would strain their wine before they drank it because it might get a gnat in it. And a gnat, it would not have died in the proper manner. And it was also a, maybe an unclean insect. So they would strain their wine just before they drank it so they wouldn't swallow a gnat that defiled them. But then they would swallow a camel. In Jesus' words, he was saying, but these other things, grace, mercy, and truth, you're ignoring them. You're swallowing a camel of sin and ignoring it. Verses 25 and 26. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and Excess, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. They made sure their dishes were clean on the outside. But then used them for gluttony and excess. Not controlling the lust of the flesh. The very dishes that they were so sure to keep clean, they used to sin. That gets a little close home. What are the things that I make sure look good in my life, but then turn around and use them in a way that dishonors God? Would Jesus be saying the same thing to us that he's saying to me, that he's saying to the Pharisees here? Verses 27 and 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whitest sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones. And of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Would Jesus say those two verses to us today? Is it possible that I'm a Pharisee or a hypocrite? If there's something wrong in our hearts and we cover it up and don't clean it out, we're like beautiful graves 
painted white. They would, they would um, whitewash the graves of the prophets to make them look pretty before the Passover. And if you want to, I'd like to give you a picture of how disgusting this is. So we were doing an excavation site up in Broadway. And there was a, an old cistern in the backside of an, a lot there that we had to clean out. We had to get rid of it and pack it in full of dirt. And so it was just an old concrete cistern. And I took the excavator and broke the top off, dipped it out. And oh my the stench to come out of that thing. And I thought, what in the world? I dipped the bucket down in there and came up with this bucket of black goo. And you talk about just awful. I mean, it, whew. And so we had to kind of swing this stuff over and dump it off. And we kind of made a channel to where it kind of run away from where we were working. And we kept dipping it. Oh, just, I mean, nasty. Finally got down to the bottom and I dipped and there on my tooth was a cow skull hanging. How a cow got in that cistern, I haven't a clue. The, the hole was like this big on the top. That's it, right in the middle. Somehow, a cow, or at least part of it because there was a skull, was in that cistern. How many years? It had been years since that place had been farmed, since a cow would have had an opportunity to fall in there. Years and years and years. Don't know how long, but a long time. In fact, it was the old buyer's farm up there, if you all remember. And how long was it since, since they've been off of it? And it reeked. We were out in Elkton, one of the, actually the very first job that I ever ran a, a pan on. And we were cutting a bank back into the woods. So we had... They had we went through and laid the trees down, got them out of there, and we were cutting this dirt. And I started noticing as we would, as I'd run the pan down along cutting dirt, as I went through this one area, man, oh, it's bad, it smelled awful. And I started noticing there was just an area where the dirt wasn't the, the clay there was sort of a red yellow mixed clay, and it was brown. And we stopped for lunch and said, guys, have y'all noticed how? awful that smell is back there where that brown dirt is were, yeah, it's terrible oh you just go through there and try to get through and get that load and get out of there as fast as you could it was just dirt just brown dirt but it stank horrible so the owner came around after a while and we asked him said what in the why why in the world is that smell so bad there he said you know what the first flock of turkeys we ever raised Something went wrong, they suffocated, we dug a hole and buried them, and I think it was 30 years. It was 20 or 30, it was a long time. It was not, there wasn't even a bone left. Nothing but brown dirt, and it was horrible. Smelled terrible. Brothers and sisters, it's how we smell to the Holy Spirit if we've got death and decay in our hearts. That really, really struck me when I thought of that cistern that I opened up and that muck and filth that came out of it. It looked fine on the outside. That dirt looked perfectly fine on the top. But when we dug down inside, the smell that came up out of it, there is no possible way I could have got down in that cistern 
It stank way too bad. In the same way, it's exact same thing that sin does in our hearts when it lays there and decays and we don't get rid of it. It doesn't really matter what we appear like to those around us. What matters is whether or not we've cleaned out the inside, cleaned out those old bones of sin, got rid of that dirt, and let God make it smell good inside. Verses 29 to 33. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Scribes and Pharisees would, would adorn and decorate the tombs of the prophets to make themselves look holy and righteous, look like they were doing good deeds. But Jesus saw right through that pretense to the pride and self-centeredness in their hearts. What Jesus knew was what these men would do in just a few short weeks. He knew that they would crucify him and kill the apostles and early church leaders. He knew that their pride and arrogance would keep them from being true followers of him and would cause them to turn many away from the kingdom. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. That's harsh. Did Jesus ever use harsher words? I don't think so. This phrase is a way of Jesus saying that they were children of the serpent, Satan, instead of the children of Abraham like they claimed to be. And he says, fill up. In verse 32, fill ye up the measure of your fathers. And they did. They went on to do just that. All these woes, harsh words, and condemnation are centered on one sin. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is acting like someone you're not, especially for religious reasons. That's a sort of a condensed version of what you'll find in the Webster's Dictionary. Pride, without fail, is the, at the heart of hypocrisy. And as I look at my life, as I studied this message, far too many times... I've been a Pharisee and not one of the good ones either. And I ask myself and you, would Jesus say, woe unto you hypocrites, if he was talking to you or me today? Verses 34 to 36. Jesus tells them very clearly what they would do in the next decade or so. And the awful condemnation and consequences that would follow. Let me read those, those verses, verses 34 to 36. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets, and this is saying, I send. This is going to happen. I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from, from city to city, that upon 
you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. They would face the consequences of the innocent blood shed up until this point in history. Now, I don't quite understand how that works spiritually. But this generation, that generation of people, because of their hypocrisy, would face all the righteous blood that had been shed. And as we understand history, Jesus' words were fulfilled. Somewhere around 40 years later, the Romans laid siege, laid one of the cruelest sieges ever on Jerusalem. And that gen. And the generation he was talking to suffered tremendously, just like he said. They were either starved, or if they tried to escape, they were crucified in very odd and weird positions just because it was more amusing to the Romans. It was a terrible time. But the lesson for us today is a hypocrite will face God's judgment. Verse 37 it's the bright spot in this message. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus loved these people. He loved Jerusalem. And he was thinking back when he read, when he said this, that passage, he was thinking back to all those prophets that he had sent to Jerusalem through the ages that had been martyred there, all the times he had brought his people back from captivity into Jerusalem only to have them again turn to idols and forget the God who had saved them. He may have even been thinking ahead a few weeks to when they would cry, crucify, crucify. And he longed to gather these people unto himself and to protect them from what was going to happen 40 years later. He still loved them. He still loves us. He still longed to protect like a chicken does her chicks. It's still Jesus' heart cry today. He longs to gather us under his protection. Like a hen gathers her chicks, it's up to us to accept and to be gathered in to accept his offer of salvation. But he cannot protect hypocrisy. He cannot protect someone who lives a lie because of pride. He can't fill an old cistern full of bones of sin. He can't abide there. We have to clean that out. Two more passages, both from Matthew the harshest words that ever will be spoken by Jesus. Matthew 25, 41. Then shall he say unto them, also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. I think those are the harshest words any man could ever hear. But the sweetest words. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See the difference. Oh, how sweet those words will be to hear for those that have cleaned out and have taken care of the sins in their hearts. 
and are ready to meet their master. And you know, in that last, the last passage, I was just reading from them there. The ones that heard those sweet words were not ones that were expecting them necessarily. But their lives had been filled with actions caused by love for others. Not to be seen of others. And they were rewarded for it. Has hypocrisy had an effect on my life? Absolutely it has. There's been times I can look back and see where I've been a hypocrite. I just pray that my life... That God would show me if there is hypocrisy in my heart and life today. And for you, the sermon was, yes, it was for all of us, but I felt like it was pointed at my own self. I don't see a, a church full of hypocrites. I see a church full of people that love the Lord. And I hope that's true of every one of us. That we are living because we love God, not because of what it makes us look like. We can hide behind this. If you look at church history... It has been hidden behind many, many times. It's terrible. And that's actually a reason why some people don't want to wear a straight-cut suit or don't want to wear a veiling, don't want to look different because they say, well, look at all the hypocrisy. Lord, spare us if that's the point, if that's what is said of us. I wear what I do because of who it identifies me with. And this isn't in my notes. I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. But we were, we were down at, at uh, my dad's viewing as we sat there and people were coming through the line, seeing people from, you know, 20 years ago that I knew well. And as I was watching them, I was sitting there, did not have my suit coat on, but I had a dress shirt. But it was kind of warm. I had my sleeves rolled up. It wasn't long. I just, the way it was, you know, as a viewing. I found myself rolling my shirt sleeves down and buttoning them up. And I thought that was a little odd until I was like, why do I feel like doing that? And it struck me. I know who I want to identify with. I suddenly started to value you, my church family, the people that I did identify with. I was challenged by that because I saw what happened to so many of my friends that didn't value that and where they were. And I do not want to go there. I deeply value what we stand for and who you are and being part of you, part of this body. And that's why this is important to me. That's why I don't wear a coat, a straight cut suit, because it makes me look, it identifies me. Your veiling, ladies, identifies you. Even the style, believe it or not, it identifies you. It's not that other styles are wrong, but it identifies who you belong with. Who are you part of? How we dress identifies us. I'm thankful who I get to identify with. I love you as a congregation. I love this church. And I'm so thankful to be part of it. I hope that none of us are hypocrites. Because there's nothing that destroys the kingdom of God quicker than a hypocrite. I don't really know how to end this message, but... I pray that our hearts are open to hear what God has to say to us tonight.